This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. We're going to talk about Stephen Sondheim's A Little Night Music. I'm joined by Eddie Mulliel-Marseille-Lee. Welcome to Triple R. Thank you very much. So, Eddie, what is it about Stephen Sondheim that his music is of such interest that not only do companies enjoy performing his work, but in this instance, a company called Watch This has set themselves up to perform nothing but Sondheim? Sondheim is in the public arena, and I've seen this with a lot of friends of mine and, and that work in the industry, that you're either in or you're out, you know, with Sondheim. And I, and I get it. I do get it. It's mainly because I think it, cause Sondheim can take you, it takes you a place where you don't think it's going to go. So if you're expecting, uh, say, something like um, some Sound of Music, la, 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 right, a tune like that. In Sondheim, if that was Sondheim who wrote that, it would be sort of like la 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 because of the underlying sort of themes overall of a show could be and he intertwines that into the music, which is really clever, but it's bloody hard to learn. <laughs> hard to learn and perhaps for audiences who, as you say, are used to more simple melodic structures, kind of a bit of a challenge. It is a challenge and I think that's the the genius of it because you have have, um, he, he interweaves that sort of fabric and okay with traditional musical you've got all the you know you sort of tap along etc and Sondheim does that as well but all of a sudden he'll take you on another journey and you think oh, how did I get there and that's really clever I think that's very very clever I've, I found it very challenging this thing after doing 30 years of opera, mainly. I was going to ask, how challenging is it as somebody who is so used to the, the structures and the formality and the style of opera to then adopt to what is effectively a new art form? There's plenty of parallels between opera and music theatre, for example, mm. but they are nonetheless different approaches, different structures, different tones, and in this instance, um, an independent company as well. Yeah, um, the the change for me. Well, also you've, you've um, have a spoken dialogue, which I don't do a lot of at all. So uh, you add that to the mix, and uh, it's it's a completely different genre in that respect. Uh, you know, with, with um, like with opera, it's it's all set out for you before you even walk on. So I'm normally a bad guy anyway because I'm a bass. So before I even walk on, the music's really... Rough. But um, with, with all the dialogue in the middle, setting up the music, etc., that's quite a challenging thing as well. But, um, I, I th- well, you know, with Watch This, making this their 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 thing, you know, um, I, I reckon it's, a, it's quite a Herculean effort to try to do that, to say, that, hey, we're the Sondheim company, you know, and, and you know, we, we take no prisoners, we're here and we're going to do it. Knowing that it's such a respected uh, composer and a known composer uh, to come out and say that we are it, I reckon it's, that takes a lot of balls, man. You know, it's, it fascinates me that certain artists have that kind of focus around them. So a Sondheim company, a Gilbert and Sullivan company, for mm-hmm. example, there are kind of there's something about. Certain composers, lyricists, uh, in this instance, sometimes is both Gilbert and Sullivan, kind of one of each. That the it's not quite a cult that springs up around them. But the combination of um, such a, a rich body of work, such an established and large body of work, mm-hmm. that means it can be regularly open to interpretation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, you know, uh, Bell Shakespeare or, or, or so forth. Um, when you have, uh, as you say, a, a huge body of work that everybody knows. 
um, if you want the challenge, you know, they've taken it. They've absolutely taken that challenge on to to produce and um, bring out, you know, works. Now, I, 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 we did a launch for this, uh, John O'May and I, um, he's brilliant in this, actually. Uh, we did a launch for this down at uh, Geelong last year. And I had a... A American lady come up to me after after we'd sung the duet that John and I sing, and she said to me, um, "I've I've come along to a couple of this of watch this shows. I'm sort of I've kind of stayed away from the last one because I love Sondheim so much, but I'm coming to this one." And it, and I and I and then she said, "I'm, I'm not a crazy person. I'm just a Sondheim fan, and so have my 15 friends, and and it has that as you say that cult kind of thing." And they're all coming along. But, um, yeah, it is a challenge to put that. I don't think, you know, when, you, when you're doing something with opera, the scrutiny doesn't come that, that much, as much as this. I, I'd have to say that. Because we have such a massive thing, Wagner, Puccini, et cetera. But if you're going to set out and say that we're going to put on a little night music, we're the Sondheim Company, you know, and we're going to give it a red-hot go. Now, watch this as a company established in 2013. So they've done a number of, of Sondheim shows, Assassins, for example, Merrily We Roll Along and more. Uh, in terms of working with the company, how easy are you finding it to shift from, again, working in the world of opera to working with what is effectively a pretty grassroots, smell of an oily rag independent company? Um, look, I, I have to say that... Uh there are because, as you say, you know, living off this. What did you say? A, a smell, smell of an oily, oily rag. rag. Yeah, absolutely. And and um, fly by the seat of your pants as well. It's 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 been great because of the energy of the of the the company. The management are right there with you from the start, all the way through. There there's there are there are no offices that you are separated from from Sonia and her her group. They're on the ground with us, and then they give you a, a really great sort of platform to say, okay, we are here, this is us, and then the, we'll be working together uh, as all artists do, etc., and they're fantastic artists, but then they'll be saying, now go out and sell tickets. <laughs> now, you know, when I'm working with Opera, Opera Australia or so, you know, I just turn up and sing and walk home or catch a tram. But, you know, this is, you're in with everything, you know. So, And uh, I have to say, you know, quickly as well, is that music theatre people are... Um, uh, have a different energy to opera. Opera, we're in the long game, you know, so we sort of cruise in the first day and sit there with the music or the other musicians, etc. Um, music theatre people are so pumped. Oh, my goodness. They'll turn up and they'll go, hi, in the morning, mate, um, hello. Jazz hands at breakfast. Well, it's just <laughs> it's wonderful because, as you know, is, you know, with your work as well, it, the arc as a, a music theatre dancer, singer, actor, is such a short one sometimes. Unless you're a name, that keeps on going for 20 years. But so their energy has to be like that. Now, opera singers, we have a similar energy, but we're a slow burn. You know, we're a fine wine, you know. <laughs> so for people who aren't familiar with uh, A Little Night Music, tell us a little bit about what's the plot of the show? Oh, that's a good question. That's a wonderful question. It's, are there relationships? You know, there, there are relationships of... Um, there's a central character who's Desiree, and she's a performer, actress, singer, dancer. There's a love uh, triangle that she's in the middle of, an old love Frederick uh, has turned up on her doorstep after being many years away. She's currently going out with a oh, an absolute... Uh, misogynist peak of a man which is me uh, in amongst that he's uh, and there is a play of that relationship on top of that there's a relationship of a, of uh, a um, 
unrequited love going on between um, his son and another character. I can't give it away. So there are so many different levels of um, sliding doors kind of relationships going on that builds up to a crazy climax. Um, yeah, so as I said, if the music sets up the whole um, plan, so all of a sudden you're out in the middle of a beautiful um, Swedish countries, you know, where the sun never sets, etc. And in amongst all that lovely sort of beautiful setting, you have this quite intrigue going on. Now, musically, uh, there's quite a range of styles in the in the show as well. You've got kind of these kind of romantic, ball- kind of quite lush numbers. Mm. You've got uh, patter songs, which I always look at anybody performing a patter song and go, okay, now I'm really impressed. You're kind of sing, essentially s- singing dialogue at twice normal speed Absolutely. or something like that. But then it's also uh, got perhaps what is arguably Sondheim's best known song, which is Send in the Clowns. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it, and I think where he's placed the actual piece, that, that particular song, uh, is brilliant because the it, it arrives at a part of the musical um, where, where so much has happened before and so many undercurrents and all of a sudden this this song that makes this makes the show make sense that that for me that's from from what I sort of sit on the side and watch Nadine Gardner sing this um, in rehearsal that piece really for me combines all the things that have been going on there is so many different levels of um, of uh, people being real or being people being false, etc. And then this beautiful song. I mean, I've, I've heard the song many times, but now it makes sense. Absolutely makes sense. So, yeah, as a standalone piece, people loves it, etc. But when you come and see the musical, you go, aha. So, yeah, it's a wonderful piece. Eddie, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you so much for having us. And chookers for the run. Thank you so much. We're going to talk dance and 3D animation. I'm joined by choreographer and animator, Dr. Megan Beckwith. Welcome to Triple R. Pleased to be here. So choreography and kind of animation, how do these things work together? Well, um, I when I was training at the Victorian College of the Arts, I was also gaming a lot and, of course, sort of going into animation from gaming is is um, a pathway. So while I was training in dance, I was also gaming and I just merged my two loves. I kind of like that idea because it's the fact that one is a pathway that is clearly very, very physical. It's about the, the movement of the body in time and space uh, and then another that is kind of really quite abstract and, and intellectual and kind of, sort of digital animation working online, kind of bad posture hunched over a keyboard, all that kind of thing. So the the notion of bringing them together it kind of fascinates me. Um, well, it's still animation is still time space motion um, and placing objects in space. So so I probably bring a choreographic approach to animation. Um, so I think of them as the one process. It makes perfect sense. With the idea of then bringing in three D animation, so that. Uh, objects are not only being moved around but the dancer can move around them uh, as the audience watches. Uh, Are we talking audiences watching with 3D kind of viewing goggles, for example? It's the same illusion that you see at the movies with glasses, um, but but that only uses one, um, uh, one depth 
field. So so when you put a dancer or put the stereo image in a theatre space, you've got wings and you've got lights, it, it throws up a whole um, load of other issues, um, which is what I based my PhD research on. What kind of issues does it bring up? Um, well, your brain gets onto the idea that, that there's something not quite right happening because you have a dancer, they have a shadow, light bounces off them and it, it pulls the illusion back in space. So you lose that sort of 3D punch where you want to sort of reach out and grab the imagery. So if you lose that aspect of it, what does the, what do the audience gain? Well, um, my, well uh, my whole research was around um, keeping hold of that illusion in the space. So um, it it takes a lot of technical wizardry to where the dancer is placed and what you animate and where you place things and I've been I've managed to bring it much more forward in the space. So um, the audience will see a a um, a screen and a dancer um, and then it opens up into um, uh, animated spaces that look like they go back into um, um, infinity and images will will appear from infinity and dance with the dance and then pull forward into the audience's space. It fascinates me with contemporary dance practice, the way that design has become such a key part of dance, particularly here in Melbourne and other um, with, uh, with for other Australian artists as well. And it also intrigues me that what you're doing is in some ways stripping back the dance. So instead of dancing with objects, for example, dancing with, um, be it uh, with a chair or a piece of cardboard or, or a, a rippling cloth or whatever, stripping those aspects out and making it more pure dance in some way because but still manipulating objects on the stage just digitally uh dance is always pushed to the edges of technology like tulle was when that was invented that was instantly put into you know onto dancers frocks and gas lighting so so pushing to to new technology is is not new for dance i'm just using digital technology so Parallax is being presented at Gasworks Arts Park in the Gasworks Theatre. Um, yes, it's... and Barringer, Barringer Cultural Centre in Upway this Saturday. Great. Uh, so this is a triple bill of works. Yes. With Parallax being the third and final piece within yes. the triple bill. Tell yes. us about the, the other works that people will see. Well, the other two works are the first animated works that I made for a master's degree at VCA many years ago in about 2004 and I was reading a lot about cyborgs and post-human and I was thinking about um, how the body could be augmented Um, so I animated um, body parts and the dancers dance with them so um, a dancer will appear with an animated arm um, and a dancer will appear with an animated body and um, the the question with an arm or with a body. Are we talking about <laughs> wow. kind of layering over their own bodies? Yes, yeah. Yep, yep. And this is 2D because I, I didn't, the technology wasn't quite there at that stage. Um, and so the question is, if you could buy a body part, what would it be and how would it behave? And um, in, in the two works, torso and arm, they don't necessarily behave themselves. And, and that's, the, that's the, the key question of the performances. So in terms then of 
presenting these works alongside uh, Parallax, which is uh, a, a more recent work. Yep. It's an opportunity then for audiences to, to literally see the development of your career. Absolutely. You can see the very first things I've, I, I made um, and I keyframed those those animations in um, and it, it, took, it took hours and hours with the, the technology that, that was available at that time. Um, and now I've made sort of the, this work that is once again pushing to to what's possible with animation and performance um and so it's a really exciting really exciting for me to to see those those two works up again against my new work so i'm really pleased i'm glad you say it's exciting because i know some artists who kind of cringe a little bit at, at, at early work particularly if it's then presented alongside something much more recent that has refined their their process and their practice yep. um, uh, look, um, Torso won the Australian Post Art Prize um, in 2016. So, so the works have. It, there's something about using um, the the media that I have that gives it longevity. So, so it's not ephemeral like dance is, where you put your performance on and and then it's over and you're on to the next you know thing that you think about. It actually gives it some some weight and some and um, something that that carries on, which is also really <laughs> exciting about my work. So it's that thing about um, technology being able to repeat itself and being able to push it out in in multiple formats that that has allowed it to to have a long a much much longer life than than dance normally would. Do you ever worry that the technology will overwhelm the dance? I mean, we're, for example, we've just spent almost seven minutes talking about the, the technological technology. aspects yeah, yeah. of the work rather than the choreographic and physical aspects of the work. Um, look, that you know, people have said that to me in the past, and and I'm working really hard to to draw the dancer and and the animation into one. So in 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 the earlier works, you could take away the animation and the dance would work as as a single thing. It would be fine. It would be entertaining. It would work. But with Parallax, it, it, it really needs that they are one thing and they work together. Um, and sometimes I've got the animation is huge and sometimes it's really small. So, so I'm working with in those choreographic boundaries, time, space, motion, all that stuff. And for people who haven't seen your work before, tell us about your choreographic language. What kind of what style of movement can people expect when uh, they come to see the works? It's contemporary dance. Um, it is a postmodern movement, I would say. Um, but I'm also what in... does postmodern movement mean? <laughs> well, it can be whatever the the choreographer wants it to be, isn't it? Um, but I'm working in um, in response to ideas that um, interest me and compel me to to make my art Um, and um, that gives me parameters to work within. So my work probably looks much different from other choreographers in Melbourne at the moment Um, but then, you know, it might look quite similar (laughs) because I am, you know, a Melbourne dancer and um, I am of this this area so it's hard to get away from that. Um, But it does look different because I am driving it from a, a, techno- a choreographic and technological process. 
Who do you make work for, for yourself, for dancers, for audiences or for other choreographers? Uh, Look, I love to entertain an audience. I really, really enjoy putting something up and watching that audience just really enjoy it and have a great time. I love people coming up to me and saying, oh, it looked like you were doing this or you you took me on a journey or, you know, I I really enjoy that. That's that's part of what I do but I'm also really interested in ideas and sometimes I just make something to entertain myself and I'll throw it up for a friend and they'll they'll you know their response often um will drive me I think oh they liked that bit I'll push I'll give that bit a good nudge because I know once I get into an audience that's the bit they'll like. In terms of exploring ideas and responding to ideas obviously as you've said the the first two works torso and arm that are part of this parallax uh triple bill were responding to the idea of being transhuman and post-human what about parallax itself beyond the 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 blending of technology digital projection 3d and the choreographic language what other ideas were you wanting to tease out and explore within the piece so um we're moving into a virtual world and so I was looking at how physically and emotionally we, we can respond to virtual environments and virtual uh, objects in our, in our lives and, and with our physicality, physicality and, and, and um, you know, emotionally. So that, that's really the underpinning question. What is that like? What will it be like in the future? How will we deal with it? And, you know, what happens if it all goes a bit crazy and weird and, and what might that look like? Could it be boring? <laughs> Megan, tell us about the dancers that you're choreographing on. Um, we've got uh, Chloe and Abby and they are um, VCA dancers um, and, yeah, they're very, they're, they're quite amazing. They're very fit, they're young um, and they've been quite, um, quite, interested in the process of working with the animation it's much different from a normal choreographic process because we have to stop and start I have to reanimate things um and uh when when I um held the audition for these for these spots I actually had to sort of measure them up a little bit not that they knew it I used the projection in in the audience in in the sort of where the audience would sit and sat it against them and that was part of um part of the, the importance because these were these works were made on other dancers so I had to fit like a costume the animation onto the dancer so that's that's also they're not only awesome dancers they've also got the right arm length <laughs> uh, the fine details that go into remounting the work <laughs> yeah Megan thanks so much for joining us thank you so much Uh, I'm joined in the studio by my next guest, Victoria Lynn, is the director of Tarawara Museum of Art, which is located just outside Healesville on the Healesville Yarra Glen Road up in the Yarra Valley. Victoria, welcome back. Thank you very much. Nice to have you in the studio again. And you're here to talk about not one but two exhibitions because it's a bit of a thing at Tarawara, the idea of programming um, uh, a major kind of exhibition and then another exhibition that kind of responds to it. So the, the works are having a dialogue. Correct. So we're very pleased to be presenting the exhibition Hilary Mays, which has come to us from the MCA in Sydney. And uh, Hilary is a British-born but Australian sculptor of some 40 years. 
She works with Abstract Grids and uh, we have... Um, put that alongside an exhibition called Modern Currents of Works of Abstract Painting and Sculpture from our collection. So the conversation is indeed about abstraction uh, over the following months at Tarawara. So the exhibition of May's work, she's, I mean, she's been making for decades, since the 70s, but this is, what, the first major exhibition of her work in over 20 years? Correct, and it focuses on the last decade of her work, and uh, she's an extraordinary artist. She uh, studied in the UK, she studied in New York, she actually had a very successful exhibiting career in New York and then moved to Australia in 1981 uh, because her husband uh, moved to Australia for a, for a job. His, he was William Wright, who was a Biennale director uh, back in those days. And uh, and she, she they stayed and she turned her attention to the use of wood. Um, she has an extraordinary practice because she works with the grid. Often her works lean against the wall. She creates shadows with those grids against the wall and she works with systems. So they're like lattice work, if you like, creating ghost-like shadows against the wall. They're really quite beautiful. What is it, do you think, about patterning that so interests her as an artist? You know, uh, I was reading um, a fantastic article about the uh, the grid and the idea that it's cheerfully schizophrenic in the sense that on the one hand... It's absolutely silent and you you sometimes don't get much from it. But on the other hand, the grid is everywhere in our lives. It's in nature, it's uh, in our architecture, it's in uh, Celtic uh, patterns and uh, it's used in religious art and um, it's been used by a lot of artists uh, for its... Um, it's spiritual uh, kind of qualities, if you like. I think her attraction to the grid is really, um, it's an endless system and it's a generative force and it allows her to work both two-dimensionally and three-dimensionally. And on top of that, she applies to the grid uh, saturation of colour and she's a collector of colours, if you like. So some of these works are saturated with deep blues, indigos, reds, uh, greens... Uh, they're incredible works. The other aspect of the work more recently is that she's um, been using a lot of white and allowing the, the natural wood to come through the surface of the work. And that is a development since um, her world was shattered uh, with the death of her husband, her late husband, and, uh, and these works are all called Ghost of One Kind or Another. And the back of the works is painted with a colour so that the shadow becomes the colour against the wall and the object is this ghostly white. And they really do kind of present a kind of chill, if you like. So this is abstraction that is um, highly emotive and um, and experiential. Which really intrigues me because often when we think of abstract work, we think of a, of a coldness of a, of or a rigidity. And it sounds like there's a real soft organic quality to, to Hilary's work. There is a soft organic quality to it and that's a real contrast to the works in our collection um, from the period late 60s, uh, 1970s, called Modern Currents, where there was a will to coolness, if you like. And uh, Terence Malone has uh, pinpointed that there was a kind of birth of cool at this time. And the term cool was used both in derogatory way, in the sense that some critics felt that that abstract work was too cool 
in response to the abstract expressionism that had gone before, which was very painterly, very energetic, very messy. Think of Jackson Pollock. Um, but these these artists were also pretty cool. They were the hipsters of the 60s and they were listening to jazz and uh, they were reading Marshall McLuhan, The Medium is the Message, and uh, they were part of the electric age, they were part of the TV age and uh, it was a period of uh, coolness and uh, they felt that their work uh, was part of that milieu in a way. In Australia, these artists were the first globally you know, connected artists um, working in Australia at that time and many of them travelled to New York, met a lot of the American artists who were working at that time like Rothko and Barnett Newman and um, they felt globally connected. It's fascinating to think of uh, an Australia at that age where international currency, instead of taking a year or more to, to get to the country, you could literally for the really for the first time, instead of having to sail to London, for example, and take months to do it, fly to to the east coast or the west coast of New York and be there in a day or two. That The idea of what we now t- so much take for granted, an exhibition opens in New York and we can see the photos within seconds, uh, the fact that for in that period new ideas were were coming across so much faster than they had before, but to us still with a, an almost glacial slowness. Yes, they were. And also I think it's a type of work that also translated really well through uh, magazines and photography because of its... Um, it's rigid, coolness, it's flatness. Coolness, it's flatness, um, the contrasting colours, um, Michael Johnson, Trevor Vickers, they were artists who were focusing on using just two colours in the image. And what happens, it's like it's a red with a yellow or a green with an orange and there's a great optical play going on. And these are uh, images that are very flat and uh, very easily translatable, I suppose, across that divide of uh, America to Australia. It must be, I think, great fun to program an exhibition and shape it in, in a way that you are really consciously playing up the dialogue between works and between contrasting exhibitions. It is great fun, and I found that in the collection that we have at Tarawara, um, there's great variety within that period. For instance, um, not only do we have that the hard edge geometric abstractionists that I was just talking about, but also artists that were interested in pattern. Leslie Dumbrell, a really important uh, female artist from the period, was working with uh, pattern and colours that were coming out of a more feminist understanding of abstraction. Uh, David Aspden, you could almost say they're like leaf-like patterns in the work as well. And then there's more recent artists um, like John Nixon and uh, the late Howard Arkley, the late Robert Hunter, who were working with a more conceptual understanding of abstraction in the sense that they know the whole history and they're working with it as a concept as well as a painting. And we've got works by them as well. So it's uh, it's been great to be able to play with and juxtapose many of these different tangents of abstraction in relationship to Hilary Mays' works. And even to come back specifically to Hilary Mays, she... 
is in some ways having that conversation with herself and with her works. The pairings of works, for example, uh, I think uh, Mist 2 and Mist 3, uh, in which kind of works kind of hanging almost side by side in conversation with one another. At first they look almost like replicas of one another, but then you start to, can, you can tease out the differences within them and, and the, the individual nature of the artworks. That's right. She will build a structure out of uh, the wood and she'll start with a system and it might be based on a, a multiple of six or seven or three. Um, then there'll be an accident in the system and she'll let the accident flow through the work and then she'll make a painting that replicates the system that she's just made and hang the two together so that there's a dialogue between the two images. So she is indeed always looking at that conversation between the system and its uh, replicant in in painting and in painted form as well. Now, as we said earlier in the interview, this exhibition of Hilary Mays is the first major solo exhibition of a work in over a decade. Why has it been over a decade since people were, were paying significant attention to her and, and, a, and a body of work? It's sad to say, I think, that women artists, um, as usual, don't get the attention that they deserve. Um, I suspect that's got something to do with it. Uh, and secondly, abstraction is a um, bit of a poor cousin when it comes to art. I think art that's uh, narratively inclined or is telling stories uh, or is figuratively inclined is always an easier um, an easier subject for most museums. So it's really wonderful that the Museum of Contemporary Art in Australia has put this show together and we're delighted to be... Um, hosting it with them and uh, we're really lucky that Blair French, one of the co-curators, is giving a talk this Saturday with Hilary at the museum at three o'clock so it'll be a great insight for audiences to listen to them speak about the work as well. Is it then a risk for Tarawara to present uh, abstraction as an exhibition? Is it, you said it's a harder sell. Is it, is it, are you going, well, we'll have to budget for less visitors for this exhibition because it's a harder sell, for example? I tend not to think too much about visitation. Uh, it's uh, I tend to think about the program as a balance throughout the year in terms of what we present. Uh, over the Christmas, we had a wonderful Rosemary Lang exhibition along with Fred Williams. Now we've got this focus on abstraction and every year we try to focus on a different aspect of our collection. We shine a different light on it, if you like. Our biennial is coming up later in the year. So we tend to... Um, put as much variety in our program as we can and each each exhibition brings its own audience and hopefully generates new ones. Victoria Lynn, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.